there was this woman who was really reluctant to come, right? Because we, we, we didn't know. And, and we did the screening, checked her blood pressure. It was over 200. So once the doctor saw it, she, he was like, we need to stop whatever we are doing and need to rush this woman because it's an emergency case. And, and, and so we took the woman to the hospital and the attending physician was like, if we had delayed a little bit more, this woman wouldn't be alive. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Osei Botang, Executive Director of OKB Hope Foundation and one of the top 10 CNN heroes of 2023. Since February of last year, OKB has brought mobile healthcare screening and services to over 5,000 people in 52 rural communities across Ghana. We speak with him about what inspired his work and what he envisions for the future. You're originally from Ghana, but where in Ghana? Yeah, um, so um, I was born and raised in, in Ghana. I, I, was, um, I was born in Kumase. Um, that is the, I guess, the second capital of Ghana. So the Accra is the capital and Kumase is, is one of the um, largest cities in, um, uh, in Ghana. I was born in a specific town called Bonfa Chiasi. So that is where I was born. Um, so I was in that um, small community. That is where I grew up. And can you describe that, paint a picture for those who don't know uh, that part of the world, don't know Ghana, and certainly don't know your hometown? Yeah. Um, so that part of I mean, that part is based in the Ashanti region. Um, the Ashanti region is more of the middle belt of Ghana. So more of like, in the middle of the northern and the southern part, that is where um, this region is located. Um, and the capital is Kumase. And I live in that community called Bofachas, which is a smaller town um, in, in Kumase. And so pretty much from where I grew up, um, the, we didn't have hospital or any healthcare center in that community. So more of like a semi-rural community. Um, not that, I mean, we had like a potable source of water, but amenities like um, hospitals or, I mean, a healthcare center or even schools, I mean, wasn't I mean, available there. So we had to go to the next town to, to attend school during my primary, I mean, care day, I mean, primary, um, yeah, primary days in, in, in school. So that is what, I mean, that is how it looked like. So more of a, like a semi-rural community, yeah. And were your, were your parents and their parents also from that community? Yeah, so my, that is where my mom is from. And so my mom and then my grandmom and the extended family, that is where we were. Okay. What kind of work did did they do? Or do yeah, they do? So, yeah. <laughs> so in Ghana, my, my mom, my dad, both of them were like small business hold, I mean, owners. So in, in Ghana, that's lots. It's very typical where people have their small, semi-informal um, thing that they sell in the market. Like whether that would be produce or whether that's those those are products. So they are, they were small business owners, and my dad used to sell I mean electrics. Um, so more of like um more of like an extension bulbs and those kind of things. And my my mom used to support him. So that is what they were doing when we were in Ghana. Sure. So as you were growing up and and witnessing this, the kind of work that your family did and what others did. Uh, you were 
it's probably mainly spending your time there and in this next town where you went to school. What was kind of your picture of the world at that time? And because you have done many things since then, in addition to this organization. So mm-hmm. how did that kind of worldview develop? What was your picture of the world then? And how did you start to look outside? So at that point, you know, um, when you are growing up, you know, every parent um, wants their child to be, I think the, the careers were three, like either a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. So even though we didn't even have the chance to see who a doctor looks like or what the doctor um, do, it's more of like, okay, this is what I want my child to be. I mean, when growing up. So we had like an idea of like, okay, this is, these three sort of, I mean, occupations are the, the three main things that everyone wants to do when they grow up. So mm-hmm. I guess growing up, like uh, in, in terms of career wise, very limited because it was more of like, okay, these are the three things that everyone wants their child to do. And so we are all aspiring to become one of those. And especially since my, my parents didn't um, even go to high school, mm-hmm. I think that the, they went up to middle school and then they have to I mean, drop out just because of circumstances that their family were going through. They didn't grow up with a lot of money, so they had to also, and they were also the, the firstborn of their family, so they have to fend, I mean, for, for, the, for the younger ones, so they didn't even complete high school. And so um, they, I guess they didn't know much, but they always wanted, like, their kids uh, like me to be able to get the opportunity and, and get the, the right education and hopefully become one of the um, professionals that they want us to, I mean, to be. So that is how the, the, my perspective of the world was looking like. It was very limited in terms of career-wise because then every mom or parents want their family to be like that. But apart from that, it was just, I mean, hanging out in the community and trying to learn as much as possible from the, the school because my parents were really passionate of like, getting us the opportunity to study. Uh, and I guess that's, a, that's almost a universal, isn't it? That our parents always want us to do something that they either couldn't do or, or yeah. didn't choose to do. Um, but, it, but when it comes to being a doctor and wanting our, our kids to become uh, doctors, it, we often have this kind of idea about what that is. Correct. But as you said, you didn't have that fa- facility in your community. What was the relationship like with medicine? Uh, it, did did people have a sense that that's something that they wanted, that they wanted access to a hospital or a doctor? Did they even have a picture of what that looked like? How did you develop that sense that this was important to you, not only for your own professional work, but for the life of the community? Yeah, so um, as I said earlier, we didn't have a health facility in the community. And because of that, a lot of people, one, um, even like the, the health education. So a lot of people had wouldn't even think about going to the hospital until like the disease have progressed to a point where they don't have any option but to go. So what would happen is that most of them, because of the limited, um, because we didn't have any health facility, their first resort was going to be herbal medicine. That is the traditional herbs. Um, mm-hmm. If that doesn't work, they will try and see if they can go to the nearest town I mean, to, to visit a pharmacy to get the, the, the over-counter medication. So most of them would self-medicate. And like if that doesn't work, I mean, then they will go to the hospital. Or sometimes um, most people would even go to their religious leaders first to mm-hmm. go for prayers 
to see if prayers would work. If that doesn't work, then they would resort to the traditional herbs or medication. So that was the trend. So a lot of people would self-medicate and didn't know about like the, um, didn't know about the, was it, I'm trying to remember the name, the, the adverse effect or the side effects of what they are taking. It was more of like, okay, I wake up, I'm feeling where, I'm not feeling where I have headache. If they were associated that with malaria. Okay, I have malaria. Let me go get drugs right. for malaria. So that is how how people were preaching, and that is how come I had that passion to do so because it got to a time where a lot of people were losing their lives in our community, and it was like, oh, okay, this is natural death. God gave, God has taken away, and no one would even sort of prove further to figure out what is the cause of it, right? So like people lose their life, then okay, they lost their life. Let's move on, you know, kind of thing. And it wasn't because they didn't also want to seek healthcare. As I said, one, it was one because some of them didn't have the education. Others, it was the distance to the health facility, right? So that individuals would have to travel several miles to the nearest, I mean, healthcare center. And even if they get there, there wasn't any guarantee that they were going to meet a healthcare provider, right? So people can walk hours to the healthcare center. Once they get there, they will realize that, oh, today the healthcare provider didn't come. Oh, today we don't even have medications for you. So then people would then have to walk back I mean, to the community, debating whether they are going to live or die. So some of them out of like these mere frustrations, they wouldn't even go because they were like, okay, what's the point of me walking this I mean, distance just to realize that like they can't even take care of me. And so some of them wouldn't go. Others would go, but you know, since the, the, the healthcare facility is limited, it would take them hours to, to see a doctor, right? So then they would walk into the healthcare center and something that they think it would take them 30 minutes will end up taking the whole day. And as I said, most of the people are semi-informal, I mean, business owners, so they are not guaranteed of a monthly income. So it's more of like, the more I sell my, my bag of tomatoes, the more I get money to um, to serve my family. And if they are breadwinners, there's a lot of pressure on them. They can't afford not to go to the market to sell their produce. And so telling them to leave that and go to the hospital, not knowing when they are going to be taken care of, means that they are going to lose a daily wage, which means that they are not going to get money to put um, the food on the table for their family. And so a lot of them would now debate, okay, I know I'm not feeling well, but I also need to provide for my family. What do I choose? And most of the times they will choose, I need to provide for my family. And I wouldn't go to the hospital. And by the time they get there, or by the time they realize that they need to go, it's pretty, it's very late for them to get access or for them, for the doctors to really take good care of them. Yeah. When did you first make that mental connection? I understand that you had a couple people in your family who had conditions that that of course, as as someone in the profession now, you would re- recognize as treatable. But you were quite young at the mm-hmm. time you you had these losses. When when did you first experience that? Who did you lose, and and why? And how did that affect you? Yeah, so I would say um, I lost my my grandma then my auntie because of the health challenges. Um, one was because the access to the healthcare um, was a huge problem. Um, so what we what we were able to do is that we were able to get both of them at the, to the healthcare center 
but there wasn't any healthcare provider available, right? And so by the time they got there, or by the time you got one to come see them, it, it was late. Like it was like, you know what, there's like there was nothing that they could do. And that is how come I lost them. And um as of that time, as you said, I, I was young, so I didn't know the cause of it, right? It was it was all that I knew is like, okay, they are sick, let's rush them to the hospital and see what's wrong. But it wasn't until when I started, I mean, college or studying university. And I mean, at that time I was taking like classes like anatomy and physiology. And that is when the teacher or the professor was talking about different diseases and diseases that do have silent symptoms and that people don't find out about it until it's like later um, uh, in that stage. And that is when I learned about hypertension and uh, like I learned about diabetes. I learned that these diseases have silent symptoms and if people don't do regular checkups, it's very difficult for them to even identify that. And so that started making clicking or making sense. It's like, you know what? I grew up, I grew up in a community where people would die, but we just associate that with natural death. Like, you know, this person was working fine, like Monday, Tuesday, the person is gone and people wouldn't even, I mean, probe further. So things becoming, started making sense. And I was like, could that be hypertension? Could that be diabetes? Because the person was walking normal, no symptoms, but the next day the person was gone. And so that is how I even started with the nonprofit where I was like, you know what, let's start with health education because we realized that a lot of people don't even have the education. So they don't, I mean, I know the importance of seeking care. And there's the other barrier of like, okay, even if I know the importance, how do I even get to the hospital? And the third barrier is like, even if I get to the hospital, like who is going to take care of me? And so that is how we, we started the, the nonprofit to address all these barriers to seeking healthcare and to make sure that people have access to timely and quality care. And that also was based on the personal experience that I had, which I thought was going to, as something that could have been easily prevented if even if we had the education about it and we knew that maybe we could have advised my grandma or my auntie to change their diet or, I mean, employ some lifestyle modifications so that it doesn't get to the stage where it is very late to even do anything for them. Right. Well, and and I want to talk with you about the organization and what you're doing now to address this. But, but before even that, you mentioned that you were experiencing this like everyone else in your community was where things happen and people don't know what they don't know. So they become sick or they pass. We experience that loss, but we don't always know why. Your recognition of this came through, um, you know, being in that anatomy and physiology class and other things that you did. But what took you there? Because there you were growing up in, in Ghana, and then suddenly you were you you decided to uh, travel overseas and and get your education there. How did you come to study in the states? Uh, what was that process? And then how did you, mm -hmm. and then uh, choose choose to pursue medicine? I know it was your parents' mm -hmm. desire, but but then there's your own journey. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So I did I did my primary primary school in in a, in the community, as I said, in the, the 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 town that was closer to my community. And I was fortunate enough to also get um, scholarship to go study in the city um, for senior high school. So in senior high school, most of the senior high school is boarding. And so you stay in the school, you leave your family and then you stay in the school, I mean, for, for that. And uh, since that uh, growing up, the, the, the sort of the career was predetermined. It was more of like, okay, how the education system was also 
I mean, sort of um, plant in 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 in, the, in, the, in our country was that um, if you want to be a doctor, you you go in there, you take science, you study science, and then go to medical school. You don't get the flexibility of exploring other fields. And um, so, like mine was like okay. It was kind of predetermined that you'd be one of these careers. So you go in study science and then um, go to medical school. So that was the, the trajectory that we, we were going into. Um, I, I was going into, but after high school, then um, I had the opportunity to also get another scholarship to come and study I mean, in the U.S. So when I came, I started with a community college in New Jersey, um, Wharton Valley Community College. And the whole idea then was also going to going to medical school so i was pre-med i was doing pre all these pre-medical courses and also I've, since it was a community college um after i was done i was got another scholarship to study at cornell university for my bachelor's and that is when i studied the human biology but when i got to cornell i got the opportunity to really explore other courses and so it wasn't only about the, the human biology or going to pre-med um, or going to medical school. And that is when I found out about, I mean, healthcare administration and really realized that, you know what, healthcare administrators really uh, are the people who make the bigger decisions and the decisions that they make really affect a lot of people. So for example, a doctor can um, take care of like, let's say maybe 10 to 15 patients per day, but a decision from a healthcare administrator, whether or not to accept a particular insurance um, can affect a lot of people who can get access to healthcare. And so I realized that to do make the, the impact on a bigger scale, I wanted to be a healthcare administrator to make sure that we are able to identify cost-effective strategies that would allow people to, a lot of people to have access to healthcare because I realized that decisions that I will make would eventually, um, would eventually lead to someone getting access to care or not. And that is how I also ventured into healthcare administration to really figure out how do we make healthcare really cost-effective and also accessible, especially for people who don't have the funds or people who cannot afford um, the services. Now, as you said, you you were then studying in New Jersey. So from yeah. Ghana to New Jersey, you're doing all this work. Some people who make that journey to another country or another part of the world um, then stay or they moved somewhere else, but some people uh, also return home. You've done a bit of both. You've continued your, your work, your academic work, but then you founded this organization. So yeah. how did you decide to do that? Was that always a motivating factor to return home? And, and if so, what form did that originally take? How did you form the idea of this work and then the organization? Yeah. Um, so for me, it was something that I've always wanted to, I mean, go back, especially, I mean, from my community and the lived experiences, I mean, for my, my, for my grandma then my auntie, I want, always wanted to go back, but mostly specifically to people who can't afford it or people that, I mean, has very, have very difficult access to it. So it, it has been my passion. So once I lost these loved ones, I, I, I said to myself that, once I become of age, I would want to devote my life purpose in making sure that no one loses their grandmother or auntie due to something that can be prevented. And so it was always at the back of my head. But um, when I got to I mean, Cornell, that was in my, my junior year. And was that was when I was taking the anatomy and physiology class. And that was when I learned about all these cardiovascular diseases and how, I mean, people don't know about it. But the 
I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing, but the, the good thing about these, I guess, diseases is that once you identify it at a very early stage, you can either, I mean, prevent it from escalating because you can really modify your lifestyle choices. So you didn't need like medication to really address that challenge or you don't even need to be working several months to hospital to address that. You can, in your own way, having that knowledge can, I mean, help you modify your lifestyle, I mean, choices. And that is when I started. So it started off as a project. So when I got to learn this, I knew that, I mean, things have to be done and I can't wait till I'm done with school. I need to start something right now. And so I started off as a project. I was like, I, I mean, Cornell provide this, I mean, mini grants for students who are interested in volunteering or serving um, in community. So I, I had that project. It wasn't fully formed, but I was like, you know what? The one thing that I wanted to do is like go back to these communities, do health education, provide them healthy screenings. I guess I didn't think about, okay, who do I have to include or what process do I have to go through? The whole idea was like, how do I get timely care, timely education to these people? And so when I applied for the grant, I was like, you know what, I'm going to buy these blood pressure machines, these glucometers, and I'm just going to go to these communities and do that. And so for me, I mean, when I got the idea, I was spoke with my sister. And my sister had a friend who was also who was a doctor in Ghana. And so she connected me to him. And I spoke with him and I was like, you know what, doctor, this is what I want to do. I mean, I want to really go to I mean, um, communities where they don't have access to healthcare and provide them with, I mean, health education and also early screenings. And so he was the one person who would really jump on, the, the, on, on this project and saw that it was a very important project because he was an emergency physician and he saw a lot of cases where a lot of people were coming in with hypertensive or diabetic related diseases. And so he saw that this is a very important project to do. And so once he spoke with me, he connected me with other healthcare providers. And that was the first time I went back home, that was in 2017, to do this um, screenings. And um, we said um, over 250 individuals um, with the education, with the early screening. But one story that really reinforced this whole idea for me was that there was this woman when we were doing the health screening um, who was really reluctant to come, right? Because we, we, we didn't know and we, we approached her and we asked her like, what's the reason why? And um, um, at the end, she agreed that we should screen her. And we did the screening check her blood pressure, it was over 200. So once the doctor saw it, she, he was like, we need to stop whatever we are doing and need to rush this woman because it's an emergency case. And, and, and so we took the woman to the hospital and the attending physician was like, if we had delayed a little bit more, this woman wouldn't be alive. And that story really, I mean, meant a lot to me because as I was, as I was reflected, it was more of like, you know, this woman was standing there didn't think that I mean she he was hypertensive or not. He was just thought that he had a normal she had a normal life until we were able to screen her to identify that and that small action was able to save her life. And then from that moment I, I really doubled down to really making sure that a lot of people are more educated, have access to early screenings and so that they are able to live a, a healthy life. So that was 2017. That was before you started the mobile medical units, right? Correct. So did you have an organization at that point or were you just this kind of enterprising student who said, I want to help? 
Uh, how, when did you form the organization and then start mm-hmm. getting these mobile mobile medical units going? Because you have a couple pieces there. One is mm-hmm. deciding that now you want to make it a formal activity. But the other is mm-hmm. you have to kind of negotiate with the communities. There has to be trust probably with mm-hmm. the government, but certainly mm-hmm. with the places where you are providing care. So mm-hmm. how, what's the origin of making this an official activity with this mobile unit? Yeah, so I would say um, after the screening in 2017, when I came back, I, I also spoke with the doctor and we all saw like the, the, what happened with the woman and the people that um, we saw. So the, the, the doctor mentioned to me that, you know what, the initiative that you're carrying is a very great initiative. And he thinks that it should be something that I should continue to do. Um, and really bring healthcare to a lot of people. And I said, yeah, I agree. I agreed with him because I mean that that story, I mean that experience really taught me a lot of things. And so I told him that you know what, I need to make this formalized. So I would say that in 2017 was a project, but in 2018 I registered that as a uh, nonprofit in Ghana. And so what would we would do is that before the mobile health, what we would do is that. We will get all this medical supplies equipment and then we'll go to Ghana, then partner with the local healthcare providers and then go to the rural communities. But what we realize is that, you know, uh, as you said, rightly said, in, in these communities, you need to build trust so that you are able to provide the care, I mean, for them. And what we realize is that for these communities, they trust their religious leaders, they trust their community leaders. And so to be able to do so, we have to be at the back where and and the and these um, religious leaders, uh, faith-based organization leaders or community leaders have to be the fraud, right? So we go there. These are the people we will identify. We will let them know that this is what we want to do. And then once they are on board with us, they would go ahead and do um, the the mobilization of the people. And since I mean, this everything that we did was free. So from consultation um, to medication to all the labs that we do was free. A lot of people would come just because some of them is even the first time that they are getting to see a doctor. Um, some of them, they haven't been to the hospital before. So this is an opportunity for them, I mean, to do that. And it was right at their doorsteps. And so that is how we started it off. And then once we got to learn more about these people, we, uh, we realized that most of them, as I, I, I said earlier on, they don't have the luxury of time. They are breadwinners. They have to fend for their family. So telling them to go to the hospital, I mean, to for healthcare, I mean, like they are not going to go because they 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 have they have other competing priorities to do so. And that was the the, the idea of the the mobile van. It was like, okay, how can we now bring the healthcare to these people where they don't have to travel several miles? And the whole idea was that if we are able to get to them early, educate them, provide them with early screening. We are going to keep them healthy so that they don't have to now even travel several miles to the hospital where it's already overburdened. So the goal was like, how do we keep them healthy and away from the hospital? And that was the initiation of the, the mobile health van, which we we um, started, I mean, in 2022. And that has its own story on how we got the van. It was a pretty interesting story. Well, how, how did how you, we, yeah, I was going to ask, how did you get the van? I mean, suddenly there's a van and it's fully outfitted. Mm-hmm. Who who came to your aid? Did you have to go to them? Did they come to you? What, yeah. what happened? So what, what happened was that I, I, I clearly remember that was uh, 2020 slash 2021. 
Um, so I went to these communities again as part of what, of what I do. And I think it was also around the COVID areas, I mean, COVID time. So I, I got, I, I, I used the opportunity to really understand the people, right? Because for them um, in, in the U.S., you know, it was easy for us to close down and then get stimulus check coming from the government. But in Ghana, it's different. Like telling someone not to go to the market is like telling the person that, like what is the person going to provide for their family? So it was different. And so I got to really learn more about them. And funny enough, when I was talking to them, I told them that, you know what, that was 2021. I told them that a year by this time, I will, I'll be coming back to your community and I'll be coming back with a mobile health van. And as, as I was saying that, I think what I had was like $100. <laughs> that was all that I had at that point. But for some reason, I, I guess I had that faith that that would happen. And I was really passionate about like bring, making that happen. And so I had this idea to bring that. And I spoke to the people like a year by this time, I'm going to have it. But that time I had only $100. And so it was like, how do we make that happen? That was the next question. And so, I mean, my first idea was like, you know what? We are going to at least see whether we can fundraise if we don't get that amount, whether we can um, go in for a loan and do it. So I started negotiating for a van <laughs> way back in um August, right? Um, that is August of 2021. And and the person would be, would come and say, okay, when are you guys ready? And I will tell my team that, you know what, we don't have any money. So let's let's negotiate and let's keep him, um, like, give him a timeline that would be long enough for us to really get something together. So we would just be speaking with the person really interested in getting the van, but we'd be like, you know what, give us some time. We will get back to you just to buy us more time to get that. And it was in September and I got a call from one of my um, board of directors and we were just talking um, casually and he was asking like, so what do you want to do? I was like, you know what? Um, I have this idea. Um, I went to, to these communities. I told them that we are, we are going to come with them with a health van. We don't want them to work several miles. We don't want them to lose their loved ones. But I mean, we don't have money to get there. And he was like, okay, you know what, um, my 50th birthday is coming up and I've always wanted to do something bigger than, than myself. So I would like to use my birthday, I mean, to do a fundraiser to help you guys get the van. Um, and for me, it was <laughs> it was really surprising because I, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't know how the money was going to come. But I knew that a year by the, a year by this time we're gonna get the country there, and so once he said that, I mean, I I was really surprised, shocked at the same time, and so um he helped us using his fiftieth um, birthday to fundraise for us to get I mean at least three fourths of the money um for the van, and and then I added my personal contribution to it because I mean that is what I've been doing since I started in twenty seventeen contributing with my own money so. That is how come um, we were able to secure the van. And we we already had negotiated, so we were just waiting for the money to make that happen. And so once the money came, we just got the van. Then we had to retrofit that. And, you know, I wanted to put, I mean, solar panels on it just because some of these communities, there are no electricity. And so the whole idea is like, even though I want to provide healthcare, I also want to collect data so that we are able to make informed decisions. We, we are able to provide tailored healthcare to people, yes, because every rural community is different um, uh, in terms of the prevalent disease that, that um, come there. So 
that is how um, we, we, so we had the van, we did the solar panels, we got the electronic medical record. And I came to the U.S. trying to figure out, okay, what organizations donate medical supplies or medical equipment for free? And that I came across MedWish International based in Ohio. And I quickly reached out to them like, you know what, this is what I want to do. Can you guys help us? And they gave us some of the medical supplies and, and equipment. And that is how we started. And I mean, uh, uh, to my word, uh, a year um, by that time, in 2022, we had the van ready to go. Um, to send these communities. Uh, that's that's amazing, and but that's just a starting point for you. I know you've already mm-hmm. taken this this uh, this unit to I think it's fifty communities and four thousand mm-hmm. people so far. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That is um, right. But you uh, you have greater desire to or ambition mm-hmm. to reach more people. What Perfect. what's the goal, and how do you imagine getting there? And what do you need to get there? Because it's one thing to have one board member mm-hmm. donating their birthday. It's and mm-hmm. which is extraordinary. It's another to then multiply that. Uh, and so, how, what what's the vision and what do you need to get there? Yeah. So the the vision by twenty thirty four, we want to um, take healthcare to the doorsteps of eight million people. Um, and the the um, the the plan is that we definitely need more more vans, more health vans, um, to get to these people and also um, leveraging technology to be able to um, scale the work that we are doing um, to these communities and also training some of the community members who lived in the community as health advocates. And so we tried that, I mean, last year in 2022, where um, we trained um, 20 community members across four rural communities to serve as health advocates. So what we did was that we trained them, we gave them blood pressure machines, we gave them glucometers, and then these people would be like an extension of us. So once we come to the community, we do the health outreach. People that need close monitoring or follow-up, we would then give them to the people that we train. So these people would then go house to house um, to check the blood pressure, to check I mean, the glucose, and then they will report the data back to us. So once we identify that, oh, okay, there is this person whose numbers it keeps going up, we would then intervene and then provide them with the necessary medical care. And so this way, we are able to really empower the people who live in the community, I mean, to serve uh, as health advocates and so that there there isn't over-reliance on the van to be there because ultimately the van is is a machine. It can get, it can break down at any point, but doesn't mean that we we stop or we, we stop um, healthcare from getting to these people. So thinking about different ways where things are not built only around the van, but also how do we decentralize this healthcare, I mean, to the people. And another part of what we, we do is mental health. Um, we acknowledge that, I mean, it's very important, even though we are treating physical health, we cannot leave mental health I mean, from physical health because they are really interrelated together. And so what we started was our mental health initiative where we realized that a lot of patients that we are seeing, they will come in with a pain, but once you talk to them, they kind of talk about like stress. They kind of talk about, I mean, being anxious, being depressed. You no, know, there's a lot going on. And so we realized that, I mean, it's good to treat the physical health, but we have to recognize that the person to be physically well, you have to be well mentally, not only physically. And so we started our mental health outreach initiative where now the focus has been on the, on the youth. Um, where we are trying to educate the youth to be, I mean, uh, advocates, provide them with the mental health resources. Because right now, 
mental health is one of the spaces that is really underfunded in Ghana. So just a little bit, I mean, a, a bit of the data around mental health in Ghana is that the Ministry of Health, I mean, only allocated 1.6% of its budget towards that. And, and, and a country of 32 million people, we only have three, I mean, mental health hospitals in the country. And even with that, that there's no word for children or adolescents. So then they treat everyone um, with that. And also we had uh, only about 64 psychiatrists in the whole country serving um, as mental health practitioners. So our goal is that how do we, I mean, help people by providing them with the resources and the educations because we all know that mental health or situations we cannot prevent mental health. It's like something everyone would go through at one point uh, in their life. So, but how do we empower people to have the resources so that when things happen, they are able to cope well um, with that? So that is something that uh, part of our vision is how do we integrate mental health into the services that we are offering? And eventually we realize that, I mean, um, specialized care I mean, for these people too, it's another challenge. Uh, uh, and especially the people that we are serving are farmers. They don't get to check their eyes. They don't get to check their teeth. And so how do we now I mean, in, um, bring, um, add those services where people can at least check their eyes um, um, and also see how they are doing? Because, you know, all these diseases like hypertension, diabetes, affect major organs, which include, I mean, the eyes um, and as well. So how do we really... I mean, hone on into that. And the last thing that we are really, I mean, passionate and want to really do is to is maternal health. I mean, uh, as part of the work that we are doing, just because um, the communities that we serve and, um, and uh, especially since we spend a lot of I mean, time with these people, we've realized that most of the, these moms, rural moms, don't have access to healthcare. Like one community, for example, if someone is pregnant, they need to put the person um, on a motorcycle, which is 40 minutes uh, and and to the near 40 minutes away, um, to the nearest healthcare center. So imagine someone who is ready to deliver now to be put on a motorcycle and even get to the to the hospital or to the nearest healthcare center. And and even with that, I mean, it's not always guaranteed, as I as I said. So our goal is that how do we get to moms really early prenatal care? How are we able to make sure that these moms are really healthy to even give birth. Like, how do we give them the vitamins? Because if access to healthcare is even a challenge, how much more antenatal care? Like, people don't even have access to antenatal care. So how do we get that to moms pretty early to make sure that they are healthy? And afterwards, when they give birth, how do we make sure that their babies are also healthy? by bringing them the immunization, the vaccinations that they would need. Because since most of them don't have access to healthcare, most of them would, would deliver at home. But since they deliver at home and there's no data on their babies, it's not very difficult. Like how do these babies get the right vaccination, the right immunizations to also be healthy? So that is another focus of us that we are trying to see how do we, I mean, add that to our services so that when we are in the community, we are providing a holistic care. As you roll this out more and more, you probably need resources to do that. Yeah. Of course, uh, being honored by CNN is helpful in spreading the word here mm -hmm. and I guess around the world because of CNN. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm curious, though, about the kind of reaction you're getting from kind of three bodies of people. Um, first, 
um, the the donor community? Are people responding in the U.S. and Ghana, other places, and saying this is really important? We want to support it, and so donors, but also um, in terms of the government. I mean, the government of Ghana, perhaps the U.S. government or other kind of uh, partners with Ghana who want to make sure that this kind of support is available for the 8 million out of the 22 million that you've described. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the individuals that you meet with who are probably in the same position that your grandmother and your auntie. Mm -hmm. Um, So how are each of these communities uh, responding to what you're doing and what you seek to do? Yeah. So I will start with um, the people that we said for for them, they, they, they are really, really excited because for them, the more resources that we get means the more they are able to get access to healthcare. So especially um, with our stakeholders, like the religious leaders and the community leaders, when we told them about this, they were really excited. And some of them gave testimonials because, you know, once you get nominated, CNN would do due diligence and then they would need to speak with people that you serve or like these key stakeholders. A lot of them, we, yeah, we, we had more than we, this, uh, CNN wanted, like all of them wanted to, to speak and it wasn't only the religious leaders or the the, the community leaders some of the district health directorates i mean were, were willing to speak just because they realized that i mean even with the support that they get from the government it wasn't enough for them to even serve the community and so really bringing our services is even complementing the work that they are doing to even reach the how to reach people. So there's a lot of them who wanted to speak and a lot of them are really excited because a win for us means a, a win for them. So that it was how the reaction I mean, was. And I know that most of them are trying to push for people to vote for us in Ghana because it's very important for them. Um, it, it, with the government, I mean, we are still, I mean, once the, the the news came out, we had a couple of calls from the Ghana Health Services. I mean, we are trying to see how they can at least support us. Um, so as of now, we haven't had any substantial conversation with them. They reached out to learn more about the work that we are doing, to see whether we are following the right protocols. We gave them all the protocols, but we are yet to hear back from them on like how they were like, I mean, as to move forward or how they would like to support us. And I know that, you know, the, the Ghana, Ghanaian healthcare system, we have a national health insurance. So individuals who provide care for people can get reinvested from the government. And um, it's my goal that at least we can uh, get to that point where the government would at least reinvest us for the services that we provide for these people in the community so that we are able to still sustain the work that we are doing. Since right now, everything that we do for these individuals are free. Um, from, from the donor perspective, um, we've seen people read out. I mean, people have donated through like the different GoFundMe pages, but we haven't yet secured any um, substantial donation from a foundation or from anyone. It has been still one-time donations from people who get to read our story and really feel connected to that. But as of now, we haven't gotten any Fund, fund, huge funding from any organization yet. But it sounds like you're uh, positioning the organization to be seen as well as to provide this care. So uh, I'm sure that will attract attention. And all of that's good, especially if the government is supportive. And most importantly, that the people that you're yeah. you're treating um, yeah. are are getting care for the m- many. It sounds like for the first time. Um, Correct. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how this makes you feel. I mean, the whole genesis of this was your family. 
Mm-hmm. So I wonder what your grandmother or your auntie would say about what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, for them, they, they are really, um, they would be really proud of the work that I'm doing. Uh, because I grew up in a, I mean, in a family where service was very important to us. So we like to serve. That is how I grew up. And so, I mean, I'll go to school, I'll bring a total stranger to the house and my family will take good care of them. And so that is how I grew up. So I believe that, I mean, they will be proud that I'm still continuing with the service, I mean, to humanity. And, and, and most importantly, when you get to the community and you see someone who came into the van, I mean, ill, right? And you give them treatment, you give them medication, and then you go there again with your van and the person is not fit and it's not helping mobilize people to come. I mean, it, it, it hits very differently, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, like life, life to save a life is, is a huge deal. And, and in, in these communities, most of the people uh, like are breadwinners of their family. So if they lose their life, not only are they gone, but there's a whole generation that might not be able to get to where they have to get to just because like their breadwinner is not it's not there. And so it has that rippling effect. And so being able to really, I mean, provide care to a lot of people, I mean, that would otherwise would not have care. I mean, it's a very satisfying and very a very fulfilling, especially when they come, we give the consultation, we give the medication, we do all the lab diagnostics and they, they are just waiting like, Am I going to get a bill for that? And then we just tell them that, you know what, it's free. You just have to work home. You, you don't need anything. We don't, we don't need payment. Um, it's full of testimonials. Like we go to a community just because we do it for free. And there are farmers, you know, they will go to their homes, give us cassava, like food stuff, because they don't have money, but they, they just want to show appreciation for, for the work that we are doing. And so they give us a crate of eggs for people in the poultry People in the family will give us plantains, will give us yams, just to show that they are really grateful. I mean, for for, for the work that we are doing, and 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 so that that really really fills fills my heart. Just I mean, just realizing that we are saving a life, um, or like someone would have lost their life if the medical van was not around. Yeah. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.